Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, why mysteries matter, detectives, literature, and life. Fiction writer Alex Olin maintains that the reason readers and writers are perpetually drawn to the mystery novel is because detective stories reflect the way we judge our own society. And mysteries, which tap into the darkest shades of that social context, speak to the chaos each of us may suspect is lurking beneath the surface of our days. Alex Olin is the author of two acclaimed works of fiction. Her first book, The Missing Person, was a bookless top 10 first novel of 2005. Olin's new book, Babylon and Other Stories, was shortlisted for the Story Prize. Her stories have been selected for both Best New American Voices 2004 and Best American Short Stories for 2005 and aired on NPR's Selected Shorts. Recorded before a live audience at the Los Angeles Central Library as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Alex Olin. I'm very excited to be here talking about mysteries, which is a genre that I love and have been a huge fan of since I was about 13 years old. And the way that I came to the mystery was I grew up in a house that was full of books. My father was an English professor, and ours was the kind of house where conversation about F. Scott Fitzgerald's career and what would have happened had he not died so young and tragically, this was sort of the type of thing that might be discussed with great urgency at the dinner table instead of sports or other things that normal people talk about. And when I was 13, my father gave up his basement office so that I could have my own bedroom. But there wasn't enough room in other parts of the house for him to take his books with him. So I inherited this room that had one entire wall full of books. And at the top, at around eye level, were like the literary books, the Updikes and the Hemingways and the Faulkners. And I sort of ignored those and discovered down uh, on the lower shelf that there were stacks and stacks and stacks of mystery novels. And I immediately stopped doing my homework and took to reading these books instead. And I remember them really clearly. They were like the mass market paperbacks from the 70s with lurid covers of men in mustaches with flared pants pointing guns off to the side while large-breasted women reclined behind them with their hair all a feather. And it was just this incredible discovery of, I think I'm making them sound a little more lurid maybe than they actually were, but I discovered this whole world of the mystery, and I started reading people like Raymond Chandler and Rex Stout and Ed McDonald and Dorothy L. Sayers and Georges Simenon, all kinds of different things, police procedurals and British cozies, uh, hard-boiled noir, this huge range of mysteries. And... It was really the way that I started to learn about the world. As I said, I was, I was 13 and bookish, and my knowledge of the world was essentially nil. And so it was through the mystery that I came to learn about sex and adultery and secrets, all the things that people might kill for. And I also learned about things like wills and codicils <laughs> and money and all of those things that people might kill for, and things like status 
and corruption and those other things that people might kill for. So when I was thinking about this talk, I was thinking, well, you know, what do mysteries teach us? And it seems to me that literature in general exists to tell us something important about the world. But the mystery genre exists to tell us things about the world that are dark and dangerous, and that is something that is profoundly appealing to us. And so tonight, I wanted to talk a little bit about what that appeal is and what we get out of it and, and why it matters. And in doing that, I'm going to talk a little bit about what some of the conventions of the mystery are and talk about two of my favorite writers, Raymond Chandler, and then there's a recent Swedish mystery writer named Henning Mankell that I'm going to talk about a little bit. And then to close, I'm going to talk a little bit about about my own work and how mysteries have influenced me as, as a fiction writer. So why do we love mysteries so much. My father and I clearly are not alone in our love of the mystery in an industry, book publishing, which is frequently described as having a lot of problems. Mysteries continue to sell really well. And what I think is interesting is that mysteries are a literature of quantity, right? A mystery is it's a genre of abundance. Generally speaking, we tend to read mysteries in series, in piles, in big stacks that we find in church sales or, or bookstores, and we tend to read them quickly and addictively and usually not more than once. If you start reading a mystery, which frequently happens to me, and you're like you know, 50 pages into it and all of a sudden you realize that you read it before, <laughs> you know, but then you immediately, at least I do, I stop reading, right? Even though I had forgotten that I had read it before, as soon as I remember that, I get rid of it and I read another one straight away. Because there's always more, right? There's always a new one. I had a friend in graduate school who read A Mystery a Day when he was trying not to finish his dissertation, right? Um, And he could do this knowing that there is an infinite supply of mysteries out there. We are never going to run out of them. And that's something that is particularly comforting to us. I have found that when people say they love mysteries, they don't tend to say they love a particular mystery in the way that they might say they love the book The Catcher in the Rye or the movie Titanic. Sometimes people will say they love a particular author or that they love a particular subgenre, right? I like to read mysteries set in the British countryside or I like to read mysteries that are set on the mean streets of L.A. or, or what have you. But they don't tend to say, I like this one book, right? It's a huge kind of book that is identified as the mystery. And what's also interesting to me is that when I say I'm reading a mystery... We all know what that means, right? It is a term that spans an enormous array of books, and yet we all understand pretty much what it means when someone says, I'm reading a mystery. And one thing that it means, I think, is that we're reading for a certain kind of plot, right? And the plot is usually the exact same thing, right? At the beginning, there's a corpse, And then there is a detective, and through some series of obstacles and red herrings and clues, the crime is solved by the end of the book, right? That's the deal. That's what we're looking for in the process of of reading a mystery. And so the hallmark of that plot is a, a violent act at the beginning and then a solution of some kind at the end. And it's a really interesting thing that we're drawn to this same plot over and over again. 
a lot of people have theorized why we are so drawn to this. There's a great book by David Lehman called The Perfect Murder, in which he says that detective stories you know, mesmerize us because our love of mystery is matched by our longing for certainty. Right? So it's a kind of dance between violence and certainty, mystery and solution. And the poet... W.H. Auden wrote an essay about the mystery that's really interesting in which he gave it a religious connotation. He said that the mystery is a religious ritual. It's a dialectic between innocence and evil in which evil is confronted and innocence is restored to the world. I don't know if I personally would go so far as to give it that religious interpretation, but I do think it's interesting to ask why we are so drawn to this genre that incorporates violence and what that tells us about our sense of ourselves as people who live in a violent world. And I think the mystery speaks to our desire to descend into a world where things have gone wrong and then to be brought out of it at the end. And we get to experience the seduction of violence and the thrill of it, but we also get to see that that violence punished. In the mystery, of course, the corpse never gets undead, right? The act can't be undone, and yet the criminal is usually caught and punished. So actions have consequences, legitimate and concrete consequences, in a traceable causality. And to me, I think that it's something that we wish were available to us in the rest of the world. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that there's a lot of evil in the world that is enormous and vague and hard to quantify, much less punish. I have a sense that there's a lot of evil being perpetrated by governments, corporations, what have you, in the world, and it's very hard to imagine that there's going to be a single detective who will be able to hunt down and solve all of those crimes. So one of the things that mystery does is to put evil on a manageable scale for us and give us some sense of uh, working out those, those issues for us. And so maybe one thing to think about with mysteries is whether we could bring that kind of value system to bear on the world and try to find ways to be more detective-like in the way that we think about other kinds of evil in the world. So I wanted to go a little bit more specifically into what the elements of mysteries are and how they're so familiar to us, and yet those conventions still offer some constantly renewed sense of interest. Now, I already talked about at the beginning there is a violent act, right? There's always a a corpse at the beginning of a mystery novel. The other crucial figure besides the dead person is, of course, the detective, Right? And the detective is our guide into the world of the mystery. He's our savior and our stand-in. And without him, nothing happens. Right? He has to launch the investigation, and that investigation is the engine that moves the story forward. The detective is a really interesting figure because if you look at the history of the mystery novel, he's someone who restores good to the world, but he's often not very good himself. Right. If you look back at Edgar Allan Poe, his hero Dupin was really kind of just an intellectual snob who was in it to make the police look like fools. Sherlock Holmes, not really a stand-up guy either, drug addict who liked to sit around pontificating to, to Watson. And for him, detection was really an intellectual challenge. It was sort of like he was doing the New York Times Sunday crossword or something. And we see the descendants of that kind of detective in TV shows, right? We see them in figures like House, 
who solves the mystery of illness with his diagnoses but isn't really very empathetic towards his patients. We see it in all the guys who are the anchors of the CSI shows, right? It's always a man, and he's always kind of a genius. He may not have the best social skills, but he has this ultra-supernatural ability to look at clues and figure out what they mean. And the detective also, crucially, tends to be a figure who stands a little bit outside of society. It's as if being so close to all that crime and violence exerts a psychic and emotional toll on him. And it's not always a him, but it's quite frequently a him. And usually he doesn't have a happy marriage or a stable home life or a good relationship with his children. In fact, the person that the detective is often closest to is the criminal. Right? They seem to be so close as to be sometimes doppelgangers or even soulmates, right? because the detective is the one who understands the criminal, and the criminal has left clues for the detective. So it's almost as though they speak a language together that no one else can share, and that's a really dark place for the detective to be, and it makes him almost like a sacrificial lamb for the rest of society. He takes on weight that the rest of us cannot bear. You're listening to fiction writer Alex Olin. This is Zocalo. Zocalo Radio is available as a free podcast. You can grab the podcast anytime at our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We now return to Alex Olin with Why Mysteries Matter, Detectives, Literature, and Life. My favorite detective is Philip Marlowe, who is in the Chandler books. And in books like The Big Sleep and Farewell, My Lovely, he walks the streets of Los Angeles like the last honest man, while all the while pretending with his sort of brittle, hard-nosed exterior that he's not such a good man. And Chandler himself said that Philip Marlowe had no more social conscience than a horse. That's a quote from him, but it's clearly not true. And Marlowe is always shown refusing money and making friends with people who are on the wrong side of the equation. He alienates the police who ought to help him because he's his own man. He won't suffer fools, and he won't ever be corrupt. And as a result of that, he winds up alone, and he usually has to also reject the sexy women who are inevitably throwing themselves at him. And that's another part of the corruption that he has to keep away from and also that the sacrifice that he makes. I wanted to just read a small representative passage from The Big Sleep because it's such a great book and it says so much about the way that Marlowe looks at the world. This is not a like, particularly exciting or gory passage. It's just a simple passage where Marlowe is meeting a suspect for the first time. And he says, There was a small ivory push button beside the door marked 405. I pushed it and waited what seemed a long time. Then the door opened noiselessly, about a foot. There was a steady, furtive air in the way it opened. The man was long-legged, long-waisted, high-shouldered, and he had dark brown eyes and a brown, expressionless face that had learned to control its expressions long ago. Hair like steel wool grew far back on his head and gave him a great deal of domed brown forehead that might, at a careless glance, have seemed a dwelling place for brains. His somber eyes probed at me impersonally. His long, thin brown fingers held the edge of the door. He said nothing. 
And I think what we see in a gorgeous passage like that is, I mean, it's really not a thrilling passage, but the language is so great. And Chandler is really working his language and and making the most of it. But we also see that Marlowe is, is not just any old guy, right? He's not an ordinary person. He's someone who examines everything at this incredibly minute, observant level. He sees patterns in things. He sees that there's a pattern of brown that goes through this guy's physiognomy and he also sees things that someone else at a careless glance might think this guy's high forehead indicated that uh, he had brains but Marlowe knows better right and he knows better because he's this excellent observer with this aesthetic and psychological sense of the world there's no such thing for him as a careless glance And I think in this respect, the detective is almost like an artist or a writer figure in that he is this intense social observer. Henry James sort of famously said that a writer is someone on whom nothing is lost. And the detective very much fits that description. He takes the smallest details of ordinary life, right? A fingerprint, a date in an agenda book, a glance between suspects, the flower bush that is trampled beneath the window, and strings those clues together in a way that makes a meaningful story. This, I think, is another lesson that we can take from mysteries. I mean, what would the world be like if we all paid attention to ordinary details the way a detective would? And what kind of story might we make from the world? So the detective goes into this world of violence, looks at it really carefully, and figures out for us what it means. And I think we should all think about why we are so drawn to all of this violence and crime, right? Theoretically, we might abhor it, but like the detective, we need it for the mystery to survive. We need it for our reading pleasure and for our entertainment and for the books to exist at all. So we're reading for this plot that has the corpse and the detective and then the solution. And the real joy of reading the mystery is to see how the puzzle is put together. And yet, another thing that is really interesting is that often, once we finish it and we figure it out, we can barely remember the solution. I myself have read probably 100 mysteries in the last 10 years. I could tell you virtually nothing about any of them, except there was a dead guy, and he got killed, and then someone figured it out, right? That's the basic story. So if the plot is always the same, then why do we keep reading? If we already know from the start what's going to happen, and we're not really going to even remember how it happened, what is the appeal of this genre? And partly I think it's that there's, there's a dance between sameness and variation that is deeply seductive to the reader. We want to be familiar enough with those conventions that we too can play detective. We want to figure out what are the red herrings and who are the two obvious suspects. And we look down on a mystery that's too obvious, right? If you guess the killer too early on, then you don't approve of the writer, right? You want to be challenged but not too much, right? You don't want also the writer to have relied on some supernatural or completely impossible explanation, right? So there's a contract between you and the writer that the writer is going to make things hard, not too hard, but just hard enough for you to figure it out. 
So that's part of the appeal. And partly, I think, also, that even though we read for the plot, and the plot is what keeps us focused, it's not, in fact, the sum total of the mystery experience. I mean, if that were true, then plots could just be published like diagrams or equations in the newspaper, like Sudoku or something. And what surrounds the plot, even in the worst and laziest written mystery, is a setting and a point of view. Because murder always has to take place in context, right? Everything happens somewhere. And because of that, a mystery has to take a certain point of view on the world, right? Who the criminal is says something about the morality of the book. And so does the setting. Whether a mystery takes place in Hollywood or among mobsters, or among the perfectly manicured lawns of suburbia, to have a murder take place in that setting implicates it, right? It says this is a place where violence can happen. And that feeling of indictment lingers after the crime has been solved and the status quo has been returned to, just as the feeling of being immersed in a world of violence and puzzlement lingers after the reader closes the book. And we can think about, for the criminals, you know, who are the insiders and the outsiders in this world? Who are the people who have power in, say, Hollywood, the mobster underworld, the seemingly manicured streets of suburbia? And from that, we can infer a certain set of beliefs about the world. Chandler, who he wrote these great letters and essays about detective novels, and he should always be the last word on it, he has a great quote from one of his letters about the violence in, in mysteries, and he wrote, The form imposes a certain clarity of outline, which is only found in the most accomplished novels. And incidentally, of course, a very large proportion of the surviving literature of the world has been concerned with violent death in some form. And if you have to have significance to violence, it is just possible that the tensions in a novel of murder are the simplest and yet most complete pattern of the tensions in which we live in this generation. So what does he mean about patterns of tension? I think it's different for every generation and every country and every form. But in the mystery, the form is so recognizable and yet so elastic that it can be adapted to almost any setting and almost any point of view. That's why there's an Indian writer named Vikram Chandra. He just published this book called Sacred Games, which takes place in the streets of Bombay. And then there's Tony Hillerman, who writes about the Southwest. There's Walter Mosley, who writes about 50s L.A. There's Carolyn Keene, right, who wrote the Nancy Drew novels. To me, I think it's amazing that a single form could contain a span that includes Walter Mosley and Nancy Drew. You know, it's pretty amazing that those things are all still mysteries. And the form is so powerful and so archetypal that we also see it moving into highbrow literature, right? Because the mystery is a shorthand for interesting stories that will keep the reader hooked while you work in more kind of literary type of tropes. Some great examples would be like Paul Auster's City of Glass trilogy in which a detective who shares the same name as the author He literally tries to figure out the meaning of life through the detective novel, and he winds up sort of like homeless and and living in, in Central Park. 
There's a great book by Jonathan Lethem called Gun with Occasional Music, in which he marries the hard-boiled noir to science fiction, and his detective actually has a talking kangaroo as a sidekick, and he puts those two genres together. And then the most famous example would probably be Nabokov's Lolita, right, in which Humbert Humbert has to track down Quilty, who he thinks is responsible for a lot of things, in, in an attempt to make him pay for his crimes. So there's an endless variety of things that fit all within the same plot. And I think that's what great stories are, right? They take hold of us as human beings because they resonate with some deeply held beliefs that we have about ourselves. And some of the beliefs that are apparent in the mystery genre are that there is violence in the world, that violence left unchecked, might go unpunished, but it is important to track it down and to punish it, that if we were all as observant as a detective, if we could follow clues, then we might find answers to the mysteries of the world. You're listening to fiction writer Alex Oline on Why Mysteries Matter. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., Speaking of mysteries, ever wonder who really runs L.A.? Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series may have an answer at an event moderated by Mariel Garza of the Los Angeles Daily News with political consultant Kerman Maddox, L.A. Weekly reporter Dave Zanheiser, political scientist Jaime Regalado, and Los Angeles Magazine writer Jesse Katz. This event on April 10th at 7 p.m. is free, but reservations are required. Please note the venue has changed to the Los Angeles Central Library. To reserve your seats and to download podcasts, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, we return to Alex Olin with Why Mysteries Matter, Detectives, Literature, and Life. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Programming on KPCC is supported by Cedars-Sinai. Obesity is a complex chronic disease. The Cedars-Sinai Center for Weight Loss performs surgery and offers a lifetime of comprehensive care to help their patients keep the weight off. It's your health, your choice, your call. You can make an appointment with a specialist at the Cedars-Sinai Center for Weight Loss at 800-CEDARS-1, or you can visit them online. Cedars-Sinai, leading the quest for health. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We now return to fiction writer Alex Olin speaking on Why Mysteries Matter, Detectives, Literature, and Life. I wanted to spend a little time talking about, as I mentioned, this great Swedish writer, Henning Mankell, because I think he's just really brilliant, and I also think that by looking at the similarities and differences between him and, say, Chandler, I can talk a little bit more about these conventions of the mystery. Volander was born in Sweden in 1948, and he's published 10 mysteries featuring his detective, Kurt Volander, and he's now moved on to Volander's daughter, Linda, has now taken over as the main character. 
Nowadays, Mankell divides his time between Sweden and Mozambique, where he works as the director of a theater company. And he's extremely interested in international politics and in the way that Sweden's sort of fraying social net is, is under attack. So he works those concerns very tightly in with the form of the mystery, which is very well suited, as, as Chandler pointed out, with this clarity of outline. It's really well suited to embrace them. The book I wanted to talk about is called Firewall. It's the sixth book in the Volander series, and it takes place in this small town called Ustad in southern Sweden. And it begins with a pair of seemingly random events. There are two teenage girls who attack a taxi driver and beat him to a pulp. And then there's a seemingly healthy man who goes to an ATM, withdraws some money, and then drops dead. And as Volander starts to investigate these happenings, he uncovers more murders, and these two events in this small town in Sweden open up to reveal a tale of international electronic espionage and people basically trying to bring down the entire European banking system. Right? So we get from like the teenage girls and the taxi driver to an entire global conspiracy. And Valander, the hero of these books, is a really fun figure. Not fun to himself, but fun to read about. He's very glum and depressive in a sort of perhaps stereotypically Swedish way. And every single day and every single chapter of the book seems to involve Valander meeting with the rest of the cops that he works with, and they all sit around the station drinking tons and tons of coffee and talking about how they're not making any progress on the case and the books are really long, probably <laughs> because of this. There's a lot of kind of shaking their heads and not knowing what to do. And in between this, he drives around trying to solve the crimes. And even though he's diabetic and shouldn't do this, he's always stopping and indulging in pastries and other unhealthy foods. He's really kind of self-destructive in some ways. But he does, in the end, always get his men. Here's a little passage just to give you some flavor from Menkel if, if you haven't read his work. Volander woke with a sore throat shortly after 6 o'clock on Tuesday, the 7th of October. He was sweating lightly, and he knew it meant he was starting to come down with the flu. He stayed in bed for a while and debated whether or not he should stay home, but the thought of Johan Lundberg's death forced him up. He showered, drank some coffee, and swallowed some pills to reduce his fever. He tucked the bottle of pills into his pocket. Then, before heading out, he forced himself to eat a bowl of yogurt. The street lamp outside the kitchen window was swaying in the gusty wind. It was overcast and only a couple of degrees above freezing. Volander rummaged around his closet for a thick sweater. When he reached street level and was about to get in his car, he remembered that he had left a to-do list on the kitchen table. There was something on the list that he had been planning to buy today, but he couldn't recall what it was. He decided he didn't have the energy to go get it. Volander took his usual route to the office, driving along the Osterled. Each time he drove this way, he felt guilty. He knew he should be out there walking to work in order to keep his blood sugar at a healthy level, and even today he wasn't so weak from the flu that he couldn't have walked. He parked outside the station and was in his office as the clock struck seven. Sitting at his desk, he suddenly remembered the item he had forgotten to buy. Soap. He immediately wrote it down on a piece of paper. Then he turned his thoughts to the case. 
So <laughs> I think this is, you know, you can see again why the books are kind of on the lengthy side, because there's this incredible detail of Volander's life that goes into every single passage. And I love that the violence that he is working with is so embedded in him being an ordinary person, and that the way that his life is described is with this incredible weight that is attached to it, right? He can't even remember to buy soap, and it seems to cause him just so much agony to force himself to eat that bowl of yogurt. I mean, it's incredible that he can even get out of bed in the morning. And the only thing that does get him out of bed is the thought of this murder, of Johann Lundberg's death, right? So violence is the thing that is forcing him to kind of get out of his depressive state and deal with the world. And I think that's a really revealing aspect of the books, because I think Menkel is hoping that by writing about this violent genre, the mystery genre, that he can force people in Sweden and elsewhere to look at what is going on in the world. So he's using the genre as a kind of platform for social examination in a way that is really interesting. I'm such a huge Mankell fan that last summer I went to that town, Ustad, on a trip with my family. I don't know if anybody has ever been there, but I had imagined it after reading like 10 of those books as this hotbed of criminal activity <laughs> where, you know, there would be like blood running in the streets and banking system conspiracies might happen to me if I took any money out of the ATM. And of course, on the day that I was there, it was a brilliantly sunny, warm day. In July, the streets of Ustad are cobblestoned and picturesque. There's flower boxes everywhere. It couldn't have looked like a place less suited to criminal intrigue. So I went to the tourist office in Ustad, and they give out this map that they produce for all the people like me who are so into Mankel that we come to this town looking for violence and crime. And they have these legends where you can actually walk around the town and all of the sites of the murders from the books are available to you. They're marked on the map. So it's, number one, this is the pizza place. You can go here and see where the teenage girls beat the taxi driver. So I did that, of course. And then you can go to the ATM where the guy dropped dead. And then you can even go to the coffee shop where the diabetic detective eats the pastries that he shouldn't eat. And they make a special little blue pastry with a W on it for Volander. And, of course, I did that, too. And it was fun and ridiculous, of course. And there was an intense cognitive dissonance involved in looking at the map and envisioning you know, the criminal underbelly of, of Sweden and then experiencing the picturesque beauty of the real town. And then there was another layer of dissonance that came from experiencing the touristification of, of Mankell's vision. And each of these layers was different, and none of them, of course, could be wholly accurate. And yet I do think that Mankell's work does tell us a lot about Sweden, even if the town didn't look like I thought it would, because his point of view in those books is that Sweden is a setting where just below the surface things are going wrong. And you might have to be a detective like Mankell to have that view of what's going on under the surface, but if you are, you will see that things are seriously going wrong. So by comparing, say, those books to the books by Chandler that I was talking about before, I think we can see how the clarity of form that Chandler was talking about, it creates a, a baseline, a template, that offers an opportunity for social critique on the part of the writers. Who are the criminals? What do they want? What made them that way? 
In using these tropes, the mystery writer has to, by virtue of the form, make certain comments on the world in much the same way that the future envisioned by a science fiction writer is always a comment on the present because it reflects our sense of where the problems are and where the possibilities are as well. For Chandler, he posits a hidden world in which the rich get richer, the police are patsies, the criminal element is always in play. It's also a world in which women are suspect and sex is always a ploy. For Mankell, on the other hand, he posits a world in which the humdrum everyday existence of a guy who goes to withdraw some cash at the ATM could be somehow tied to international global issues from technology to banking and politics. And I think that's a revealing shift generationally to our sense of where the hidden mysteries are in our world today. Many of us, and not just Mankell, are deeply concerned about the hidden structures of banking, of electronics, of international politics, things that we cannot possibly understand. So, as I was saying earlier, the mystery puts that concern on a manageable scale, makes it related to one person's murder, and then it becomes a way for the book to talk about those deep fears that we have. The great writer Jim Thompson, who wrote The Grifters and The Getaway, he said there was really only one plot, and that plot is things are not as they seem. And I think that's, that's definitely true. And the plot of a mystery novel is always a structure of revelations, right, as we discover in what way things are not as they seem. And the specific nature of those hidden truths is a commentary on what we're afraid of and what the problems are in our world today. You're listening to fiction writer Alex Olin. This is Zocalo. If you like Zocalo Radio, then check out the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. On April 10th, Zocalo will ask, who really runs L.A.? And hopefully get some answers from our distinguished panelists. And on April 18th, former Clinton White House Chief of Staff John Podesta and Center for American Progress Senior Fellow Larry Korb take up the question, can progressives save Iraq? A discussion of what's being called strategic redeployment. Finally, on April 19th, columnists from the L.A. Times editorial pages will join us to discuss California's new February presidential primary and what impact that may have on the race for the White House. As always, these Zocalo live events are free. To make your reservations and to download podcasts, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We now return to Alex Olin with Why Mysteries Matter, Detectives, Literature, and Life. I wanted to sort of close by talking a little bit about my own work and how it's been influenced by the mystery genre. I'm not specifically a mystery writer, but as a reader who has always loved it, I found myself in writing my first book, The Missing Person, really flirting with the genre and wanting to use some of these conventions in a way to sort of govern the storyline of my book. I'll give you a little bit of an outline of of The Missing Person. It's about a young woman, a graduate student in art history in New York City, and she's called back to her hometown of Albuquerque, New Mexico, by her mother, who wants her to find her brother because he has gone missing, and he is the, the first missing person. 
And the other thing that's important about the book is that the corpse in the book is, if there can be said to be a corpse, it's her father who has died a few years previous to the action of of the book. And so the detective work that my character Lynn does is very loosely organized around a mystery theme where she's looking for her father in an emotional sense and trying to figure out the meaning of his life and his relationship to her mother and to their family. And she also starts to look for her brother, Wiley, and finds him, actually, fairly quickly on in the book, but soon gets involved in his group of friends. And they're a bumbling, well-intentioned, but kind of incompetent group of environmental terrorists. And they're sort of like a cross between Greenpeace and the Keystone Cops. They have like good intentions, but things are always going wrong. And they get involved in an increasingly severe series of actions or crimes that she then gets implicated in as well. And my idea with this is that I wanted to write a book that had something to do with environmental crises. And the book is really concerned with the desert and with water issues. But again, it's just a huge subject, right? And it's hard to say, who's that one guy responsible for global warming, right? (laughs) Or development problems, right? It's too complicated to say we can find one solution that would be easily understandable. So I tried to use the form of the, the mystery and of tracking down her brother and of solving the, the crimes by this environmentalist group as a way to, again, make that sense of criminality manageable. Put it on a manageable scale so that you could have a mystery about environmentalism and come to some sense of a solution. As a mystery, and maybe even as a novel, I don't know, and I'm hardly the one to judge, but definitely as a mystery, the book is a complete failure. (laughs) I will tell you that right now. Because it turns out to be hugely different, difficult and, and different for a literary writer to try to work with the mechanics of a mystery plot. I mean, my hat is off to every mystery writer, even the worst mystery I have ever read, because it is incredibly difficult to create that set of obstacles and red herrings and and clues. I had no idea how hard it was going to be to craft a narratively satisfying plot. One of my only consolations was that Chandler himself said that it was incredibly difficult to do, and there's a famous anecdote about when they were making the movie of The Big Sleep, they actually found that one of the murders, no one could figure out who did it, and so they called up Chandler to ask him, and he didn't know. (laughs) And I look to him as a model for not quite knowing what you're doing and still writing books that are, that are fun to read. What happened in, in the end of my book, I won't spoil you know, what little there is to, to spoil, but I will say that what happens is mostly a resolution to the emotional facets of the mystery, what she can find out about her father and the resolution that she can come to with her brother and her mother and the rest of her family. And what she finds as a detective is that she's been looking in her entire life for meaning in the wrong clues. She has put the wrong story together from the existing clues. And a lot of the mysteries that she thought that she wanted the solution to are, in fact, the wrong mysteries and don't solve the riddle of who she should be and what she should do in her life. And that's something that I happen to think is true for a lot of us in our lives, that we look for clues to the meanings of our lives only to realize that we've been looking for the wrong thing and we've made up the wrong story for ourselves. 
And that's another thing that mysteries can teach us, is that if you're going to look for clues, you should make sure that you're stringing them together to the right story, the story that most makes sense, and that you aren't implicating the wrong person as the culprit in the story of your life. So all of us in our lives, I think this is really true, we are in search of the clues that will make sense of our lives. And in this way, we are all kind of detectives going through, going through the world. And each of us has our own definition of what makes uh, a hidden truth that we want to uncover the secrets of. Chandler also wrote, this is my last quote from him, in his great essay, The Simple Art of Murder, The story is this man's adventure in search of a hidden truth. He has a range of adventure that startles you, but it belongs to him by right because it belongs to the world he lives in. Another way of thinking about this, I think, can be found in the movie The Big Lebowski, which is an excellent mystery in which we hear about the dude. Sometimes there's a man. I won't say a hero, because what's a hero? But sometimes there's a man, well, he's the man for his time and place. I think mysteries matter because they can tell each of us what it means to be the man in the right place and time, and they can offer us clues on how to, how to conduct our own search for meaning in the world. What they can teach us specifically is to look for the right clues, to pay attention to the seemingly ordinary details and the fingerprints that each of us leaves behind in the world, and to figure out what is important about those traces, those clues from ourselves and from other people. I think they can also teach us to be aware of our own fascination with violence and to confront that fascination and to remember that it's because of our own need for the gratification of that desire for violence that mysteries continue to exist in such great abundance. It's because of our own war between light and dark and chaos and order that mysteries continue It's because of us that so many mysteries are written, and it's because of us that after each case comes to a close, the next one awaits. You've been listening to fiction writer Alex Olin. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., On April 19th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series and the Los Angeles Times editorial pages present Is California Ready for Its Close-Up? As California catapults its presidential primary from June to February, how will it impact the race for the White House? Times op-ed columnists Ron Brownstein, Rosa Brooks, and Jonah Goldberg join Times editorial writer Robert Green to discuss. This event at Caltech is moderated by David Hiller, publisher of the Los Angeles Times. Zocalo events are always free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and to download podcasts, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. When we return, the Zocalo audience gets its turn to ask the questions. Stay tuned to Zocalo.
On the next Air Talk, we discuss the first season of baseball great Jackie Robinson. We're coming up on the 60th anniversary of Robinson breaking Major League Baseball's color barrier. And joining us will be writer Jonathan Ige, author of Opening Day, the story of Jackie Robinson's first season. I'm Larry Mantle, inviting you to join me. Our next Air Talk, we come your way weekdays at 10 here on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. In this part of her talk on why mysteries matter, detectives, literature, and life, the Zocalo audience poses the questions for Alex Oline. Hello. Thank you very much. That was wonderful. In reading an interview with Jessalyn Roebuck, you said when you were traveling, you were keeping one step ahead of the law. What's that all about? (laughs) That was a joke. (laughs) I've never actually been involved in anything, I swear. Illegal. (laughs) I just have a question about structure, and that is, is it possible to have, or how do you structure a mystery within a mystery? If you had someone that in the beginning of the story stumbles upon something that's informing them of a mystery, let's say, at another time. Mm -hmm. Have you ever dealt with that, or do you have any comments on that? There are some great books that take on that structure, and the, the best model I can think of is Possession by A.S. Byatt, which people are nodding. I think some people have, have read that. It's a, a great cross between a sort of mystery novel, detective novel, and a romance, and it involves two literary scholars who discover texts that implicate historical figures in a romance of several centuries earlier. And so the two stories start to comment on each other. And it's a wonderfully crafted book with an excellent, excellent structure. That is a really complicated thing to try to do. I think what is important whenever you set up a mystery is to make sure that the rules of your world are clearly established early on, right? You want to make that contract with the reader in such a way that they have certain expectations. And then you want to make sure that every single step that carries you further brings some new piece of information to bear so that you avoid a feeling of of stagnation. And, And that's what's meant by the idea that every plot is a structure of revelations, right? Whatever happens within the mystery, within a mystery, should comment on the outside mystery. Now I'm getting lost in my own poor grammar, but you understand what I mean, that there always has to be a sense of forward motion. And I think as long as you keep that going, you keep the reader's sense that things are unfolding, you can do almost anything. All the uh, writers you mentioned, except for the woman who wrote Nancy Drew, were men. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the there's a different paradigm for women detectives or the women who solve mysteries than there are for all the men that you, you brought up? I do think that it has been a male-dominated genre, but that is not to say that there haven't been great mystery writers who are women. Obviously, Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers had uh, wonderful careers as, as mystery writers. Nowadays, we have some great writers who are really working to create a new kind of female detective, right? Someone like Sarah Paretsky or Patricia Cornwall is someone else who is really working with tough female characters and, and making those really compelling characters and asking what issues they confront that are different from male detectives. I think there's a lot of potential in that and there's a lot of great work being done. 
One thing that I myself have always wanted to do that I think is very hard would be to write a noir with a female detective because the noir is probably the most gendered form of mystery. The detective is the guy in the fedora and the woman is always wearing the slinky cocktail dress, right? And that is really hard to figure out how to invert those tropes so that they would still be recognizable and yet inverted in a kind of feminist way. I'm always interested in kind of knocking knocking around that idea but haven't found what I feel is like the perfect aesthetic way to deal with that. Is the mystery genre as popular in other countries as it is in the United States? Well, I'm not a huge expert on every other country in the world, but I will say that you do see uh, really great-selling mystery novelists in Europe. I mentioned Mankel, Arturo Perez Reverte in Spain. I've read some interesting Korean mysteries in translation. I mentioned Vikram Chandra in India. So I do think it's a form that has been exported around the world, and other people seem to enjoy it as, as much as we do, which is very interesting. It seems to me that the mysteries I've really enjoyed are mysteries coincidentally. That is, they would have been great novels without the mystery, but the mystery added something to them. Yeah, I agree. I think that great books are those that have great plots and yet are more than the sum of their plot, right? And I think that a lot of mystery novel novelists like Chandler start from a position of genre, right, of being bestsellers and rise above it. And then you have other writers like Nabokov with Lolita, who's more of like a highbrow guy who reaches down to take the conventions of, of genre and use them for his, his own purposes. So I totally agree with you that the best books are kind of those in the middle, the ones that are, that are really intriguing to read, and they make the most of that plot to keep you focused and keep you turning the pages, but they also have excellent characters and themes and richly developed and textured settings. Thank you very much for providing me with an excellent window and shedding some light into this genre. I would like to ask you if there is a difference in mystery, horror, and spatter, or are these genres all mixed into one? Genre is a fluid category, and we often see genres that develop and then splinter into subgenres and then are combined with other genres. Like I mentioned, Jonathan Lethem's book, which combines mystery with science fiction. So I think it's a mistake to be too categorical. But I do think that there is a difference between mystery and horror, and partly it has to do with the amount of blood. <laughs> and uh, Partly it has to do with horror, I think, is a genre that is more interested in the psychology of the abnormal and of going deep into things that are almost supernatural in their scariness and really confronting fears and monsters, I guess. And whereas the mystery is more like an ordinary person with an understandable motivation, like your wife is having an affair or you want to get the insurance money and you kill her, for example. It's horror if then you develop fangs, and that's how you go about it. <laughs> I'm sort of interested in the way you describe the essence of a mystery, which for you seems to be that it's about violence, because I've always thought of mystery books as being essentially about morality. Mm -hmm. And are these just the flip sides of the same thing? You have to have the violence because 
that's how you get to the morality with justice winning at the end, or you have to have morality because otherwise you just have unrelieved violence, and who wants that? Right. I think there's a reason why we don't read tons and tons of books about tax evasion, right? Murder is more interesting to read about so as a crime, right, even though tax evasion might be a really bad thing to do. So I do think that violence is necessary for the, the genre. It doesn't always have to be portrayed in a really gory way, right? In the British cozy, it's almost like you would never read even a description of, of the blood. But it is predicated on this idea that something has gone wrong in the status quo of that world, right? Someone has disappeared, a life has been cost, and then we have to figure out how to restore order to the world and make sure that that crime is dealt with. And that's exactly what you're saying with morality, right? So we start with violence and we return to order. Order is disrupted and then returned, and that's what makes the ending satisfying because you read it and you know that there is closure. Where would you categorize uh, Alexander McCall Smith? and the type of light, intellectual, uh, philosophical kind of mystery is. Would you consider those mysteries or stories, or where do they fit in? I think that they are mysteries, partly because they have a mystery-type plot, and also because they fit into what I was talking about, about books that are written in series, Right, where you know that there's going to be a certain amount of repetition and a certain amount of intellectual puzzling that goes on in each story. And it has that, that same dance between sameness and variation across the books that makes the, makes the mystery interesting to us. They are lighter than other things, but I, I think that they still do fit in that basic category. Thank you all very much. You've been listening to fiction writer Alex Olin on Zocalo. We spoke with Zocalo audience members after her talk on why mysteries matter, detectives, literature, and life, and found out that mysteries do matter. I, I've never read a mystery, actually. Maybe, like, when I was younger, Hardy Boys or something. But, uh, yeah, it definitely shed new light on a genre that I didn't have much interest in, but now it kind of piqued my interest. Not all of the mystery people, like Miss Marple, is not a dark character. I would have liked to have heard a little bit more how she would tie that into the genre. Well, I just love that uh, something's being discussed other than celebrities. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to actually hear the literature and the structure of literature being discussed. And then from somebody that's obviously done a lot of study and very articulate, it's a real pleasure. She knows about narratives and how they're written. I really enjoy it. I wish she'd said more about Nancy Drew, (laughs) one of the great American folk heroes. I really enjoyed it. I haven't been to that many of these. This is probably about my third or perhaps fourth one. But it's nice to have one that didn't seem to be specifically canted to anything with any kind of a really serious political overtone. It's just kind of like pure culture. She did a really nice job with it. I made a point to to check out her book and read it in advance. She's an excellent speaker, and she had really good use of the English language. I mean, you you can tell she studied speaking, and she had excellent grammar. I enjoy CSI and Homicide when it was on, and my boyfriend really loves mysteries. And I went to the last lecture at the California Endowment about three weeks ago, and that's what brought me here.
You've been listening to fiction writer Alex Olin. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is sponsored by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is made possible by the W.M. Keck Foundation, supporting community-based organizations in Southern California and advancements in science, medical research, and higher education nationwide. This summer, scientists will send subatomic particles smashing together at really high speed. They could discover the secret of mass, extra dimensions, tiny black holes, or not. Although that is the most interesting possibility, Support for this public radio podcast comes from the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business with a network of 40,000 alumni worldwide on the web at chicagogsb.edu.